Welcome to today's edition of the Pipeline Things. Hopefully you are actually viewing this on YouTube where you are probably thoroughly confused why there are not only two but three people and why those three people are sitting in a truck and not in a table. Join us on this journey as we talk about the FEMSA Advisory Bulletin related to geohazards on our road trip to Colorado where we picked up the hitchhiking dirt merchant Alex McKenzie Johnson. I think it's a show that you're really going to enjoy, particularly if you have any familiarity with the FEMSA Advisory Bulletin. Thanks for joining us. We, oh, we did it. We did it. Welcome to today's edition of Pipeline Things. I am your host, Thing 20. This is my co-host, Thing 21. And we are road tripping to play disc golf somewhere that is not in the 102 degree heat yeah. of Houston. Do you want to know where we're going, brother? Well, we all, we all like Colorado. Are we going to Colorado? Dude, we're going to Colorado. There is a fantastic course on the side of a 14er. Yeah. It's a long drive. And it's yeah. definitely off the beaten path. Kind of like me. I'm a long drive when it comes to disc golfing. Yeah, but this one's a long drive headed the right direction, not a long drive 45 degrees. No, you kind of, like no, from, from, from Houston, you do kind of have to kind of go like that. Yeah, but we're going to go straight at it. We're not going to do like you do to the pin, which is like four holes all the way around. Okay. Well, you know what? In recent events, it's summer, and uh, we just got introduced to kids' summer camps. Mm, it's yep. a whole it's a whole new world for us. Is this conversation going to fit us all 18 hours on the way there? I, I don't think so, but I can tell you this is it's uh, Gemma went to bake camp. Ba there's a camp there's for baking. There's a camp for baking. It, Rayo's Bakery I has a you, bake camp. And you have, all, no, you have alternative goals here. You're trying to get her to cook for the family. And and Gemma was like, "Daddy, I made you and Rhett cookies." You bought cookies on the I road brought trip? cookies for the road trip. You bought If you are not watching the YouTube, this might be the episode you want to watch. And she the specifically YouTube. said this that one was really is really nice. Red. She said this one's red. Are you giving me cookies to try live on the show? You go. know I can't eat the cookie. You know I don't hide my Gemma's, reactions. Gemma, well. you know Gemma's watching Chris, YouTube. God. Cheers, buddy. Why would you do this to me? Cheers. Look is that a guy. double stuffed like With chocolate? chocolate in it? Oh my god. I got a sandwich. Cheers. I hope this is good. Oh, mine is good. I don't know about yours. Oh, it's pretty good. good. Yeah, it's pretty good. I'll take that. I mean, what, what could go wrong? We have cookies. Absolutely nothing we're, can go we're wrong. We're on our own. You well, said this thing has four-wheel drive, right? Because yeah. I just noticed we are not moving anymore. Wait, what just happened? We are not moving. I really don't Where's know Where's the four-wheel drive? Chris, Wait, did we stop? Left tires are spinning. I so is it a flat tire or are we stuck in the mud? Your Ford is stuck <laughs> in the mud. All right, hey, I don't, want, get out and push I, I don't want you to hurt your little arms Hold since on. we're going to go play. I'll go figure out how to get us out. Let's go stop and push for a moment. All right. Hold on. Whew. Chris, I'm glad we got that. Fi You're not Chris. No, he's not. Guess you picked up. Guess what I found? A hitchhiker? <laughs> he didn't got, smell he like a hitchhiker. How convenient. He's he was just there. So we were stuck in the mud and the dirt merchant showed up. So he's along for the ride in case it wow. happens again. So if you're with us, welcome our guest to the show. We brought Alex McKenzie Johnson, the dirt merchant, back on. Yes, if you're wondering what we can do to friends, we can get them to shoot episodes of the podcast inside of a Ford truck inside of the lab. 
I, I think I'm going to need a, bi- a big raise on my next contract here, Brett. <laughs> we can do that. Uh, the raise from nothing is... Okay. <laughs> You're giving him our food, yeah, too? No, no, I'll give hitchhiker food. Okay. <laughs> you know what they say? You don't feed the hitchhikers. <laughs> they, they won't go away. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, so we're going to have fun on this episode. So, Alex, thanks for joining us. Welcome hey, back to the you. show. <laughs> um, so, uh, today's episode, having a little bit of fun. Again, I, I hope if you're not listening to the YouTube or watching the YouTube, this might be a YouTube episode for you, at least to, to jump over Give and see what type of antics yeah. that we're doing. Um, but we brought the Dirt Merchant back. It's been a little while since we've had us on. And that's because uh, we want to stay relevant. And something happened that's very relevant since the last time that we had you on, which is FIMSA introduced an advisory bulletin Mm -hmm. and uh, geohazards are a big topic alex and i think you are the person that i like to talk to geohazards about so i I like talking geohazards so you do right here and you know i feel like geohazards they're not like being stuck in the mud but they might be like having a flat tire so just so the audience knows yes i went on vacation we had a flat tire halfway between amarillo and raton new mexico in the middle Mm -hmm. of godforsaken nowhere yeah. And I had to figure out how to break a spare tire out, how to assemble the stuff for the scissor jack to get the car off the ground. Thank God my spare tire was in good condition. I had to figure out where to put the jack, which wasn't normal on a Nissan Armada. It was a learning experience for somebody who's somewhat mechanically inclined. And it really, uh, I feel like there's, it's kind of like geohazards, I'm being real with mm-hmm. you, because everybody knows you carry a spare tire for a reason. Mm-hmm. The threat of having mm-hmm. a flat is real. But yeah. nobody is ever prepared with that spare tire in the back. And you just know it's back there. There might be a manual in the car that tells you how to use it. Yeah. And I think today's episode is going to feel a little like you have a spare tire in your... Well, hopefully you have a spare tire in your I am plan. Not too many people have spare geologists hanging around, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> never know. <laughs> yes. And I want... What I learned from my experience was you need to be ready to change a spare. I hope this episode is going to be super practical for operators today as we go through this IM plan. And I'm just going to ask you a ton of questions about it. So, you ready to go? Let's let's hit it. Let's do it. What are you doing here? Now you're you know, in the back seat. Yeah, I'm, I'm along for the ride on this one. Mm, you always ask good questions, though. I've so, you're going to ask good questions? Are we pick- I, have one more- I might need a restroom break on this one, though. <laughs> are we picking up any more hitchhikers before we get going? It depends. Are we going to have a flat tire? Oh Lord! But we Help might us. stop on Bucky's at Bucky's on the. Oh, Everyone loves Bucky's. You know, Definitely there's no. Stop Bucky's. We there's, might stop at Bucky's. Yeah. There are no Bucky's after Amarillo. <laughs> <laughs> I can confirm this for you. And there's whatever godforsaken place near those windmills we were at. There's not humanity either. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. So today, uh, I want to start with the FIMS Advisory Bulletin we're talking about was issued on June 2nd, 2022. Mm-hmm. It's actually a repeat of one that came out in 2019. Yep. They're, they're almost identical to give the background some background uh, to our audience. Uh, there were a few changes. The, as you mentioned, they added in a couple of incidents, which is actually where I want to start. So they, they issued the Advisory Bulletin in response to the incidents. Mm-hmm. And I want to give you some statistics from those incidents because I thought it was interesting. So they list... 17 events, Alex. Mm -hmm. And what was surprising about that to me is five of them were in liquid pipelines, nine of them were in natural gas, one was in CO2, one was in propane, and out of all of those that I just listed, one they didn't give any specs for, two of them were in distribution Mm -hmm. and gathering lines. What do you uh, what do you think? Do you think FEMSA was intentional in those 17 incidents that they put in there? If I had to guess, I'd say yes. I think part of what they're trying to show is that it's an external force acting on the pipelines, right? So 
product, maybe you know, maybe matters a little bit, but not that much in terms of what the really the ultimate uh, threat. You know, so if you have a liquids line, a gas line, CO2 line, when you're talking about moving moving ground, geohazard, that's way bigger than those those pipelines, and, and the, the product is not that important in terms of the the ultimate threat. So, Mother Earth doesn't care what's in the pipeline. Mother Earth does not care what's in the pipeline. <laughs> that uh, was, you might care what's in the pipeline, but... But, um, wait, hold on, i got to pass this guy real quick after I pass. <laughs> there we go. Slow-moving vehicle. Uh, we won't talk about the driver. We just Don't drive in the left lane, please. Um, yes. So, um, Passing only. But it, So I think... I, I, I work with a lot of natural gas operators. Right. I feel like natural gas operators have been... I mean, you your background was with Kinder Morgan. You helped Kinder Morgan build that geohazards program, right? right? Yep. So I think it's fair to say I think a lot of the major natural gas operators, even though they are listed on here, have some of these failures. I've been building geohazards programs. Um, the liquid operators, the major ones too, I feel like I've been building programs. The distribution and gathering lines surprise me. I, mm. I'll be honest with you, and I'll say, and maybe it's because I don't work a lot with them, but Alex, in my experience, I have yet to talk to a distribution or gathering operator about the geohazard threat. Um, and I'm just curious, what have your experience? Do you? I don't feel like that's a discussion in the geohazards and gathering sections. Yeah, but I think you're right. Most most of the companies that are doing robust geohazard programs are big companies that have had big, expensive incidents. Mm. So I think a lot of it is the um, the financial impact the the companies. You know, if you're dealing with a hundred million dollar incident. You're very motivated to try to prevent a similar incident from happening. So if you're a gathering line and the consequences are a lot less, mm. you may be a lot less interested in trying to spend that money to uh, prevent it up front. But there are some, some distribution companies are looking at it and do, do address it. So I'm going to ask you a question, Christopher. Do you think that has anything to do with the fact that up until recently, a lot of gathering lines haven't been regulated? Yep. So there's there's always that healthy balance of uh, the market that complies, and then the market that's we would say mm. doing uh, best practice as it relates to uh, maintenance and and asset performance. So there probably is a correlation there. Interesting. Yeah, I, I felt almost I got to be honest a little uncomfortable as I brought that up, like because I don't <coughs> normally advocate for regulation. Yeah. What, what, what's, all, you think, I mean, but but what's it's, also fair to say is this sure. though, right? Is it's a lot of times we're dealing with ILI based activities, uh, and so there's true. definitely going to be a component there from mm-hmm. when our phone rings. Yeah. Around getting support, whereas where yeah, but Alex is where free Alex, from, yeah, exactly. he doesn't deal so only it's in a, the ILI world. It's a good way to try point. to you know checks and balance the correlation yeah. of is it regulated based as to why we maybe see more activity in transmission-based programs that have temps yep. versus dimps and gathering lines. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, well, we talked about this before the, the show, right, that the the regulations around true hazards are, are entirely performance-based, right? And so how FIMS has interpreted this, how they, uh, the regulations are, it essentially says the operators are required to, to manage the threat. They're, they're required to identify, assess, and have a plan to deal with it. How they do that is completely open-ended in the regulations. And I think part of the issue, in my opinion, is that when you get very used to prescriptive regulations, you see all those specific requirements that you have to do. And for true houses, because you don't have that, it's a lot easier to be... To make that much more ambiguous, what does that mean to, to have a geohazard yeah. management program is left up to the operators. And so because of that, there's a big range of how that's interpreted and how that's that's implemented. I'm just processing what you said. You know, so I, I don't think I've everybody I've ever heard anybody describe 
the geohazards component of the regulations in terms of prescriptive or performance. We talk a lot about general regulations, but it's interesting to me you said that. You know, so I think I, I think those are interesting points that we could dive into. I don't know that I want to now necessarily, but whether or not regulation influences the prevalence of geohazards integrity programs. Uh-huh. And then secondly, whether or not the performance-based nature of the geohazards regulations is why maybe operators are struggling to implement. And I'm going to use that term because I'll be frank. If you compare geohazards to corrosion IMPs, I don't think there's an operator out there gathering distribution or transmission that doesn't have a corrosion program. Right. right? The yep. oldest threat out there, they all have something to address that. But I'm willing... I know a lot of distribution, gathering, and even integrity operators mm-hmm. that I would say do not have a robust geohazards program. And I wonder if that performance-based nature of it just not sure how to deal with it. I think I think absolutely. I think I you know, and and I, I would actually geohazards to the oldest threat facing pipelines. But some of the first pipelines were built in the, the hilly you areas to take of that uh, geohazards are older than corrosion. <laughs> we're the first. But you think about like a lot of the original pipelines were built in the hilly areas of Pennsylvania. You know, when that was the, the the world center of oil production, right? And so there was an incentive to build pipelines to undercut the Teamsters. And, and well, these are some hilly, hard-to-construct areas. And so yeah. from the very get-go, you're dealing with moving ground, you know, things that we consider pure hazards. But there's a, a different mentality, right? There's a mentality that this is either a construction issue or it's an active uh, God, nature type of issue. And... Because of that, I think that there's been, uh, until recently, it's been seen as a force majeure type of event if you have a cure house. Yeah, but you can't do it. Uh, we can't you, almost, you almost kind of got a pass. You're like, oh, what are you going to do? You know, it's yeah. force majeure. Um, it also has not been written to the regulations in any kind of form that is tangible in terms of requiring, say, assessment intervals or what does it mean to uh, evaluate a cure house or what are requirements to, to manage it. Um, and so because I think it's been very easy for IMPs to, uh, to overlook them. Now I'm going to ask a question. Right I'm going to go another question. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think what happens, I want to jump in and just say... The guy from the backseat driver yeah, is going to yeah, ask yeah. a question. But, but most, most IMPs um, will, will have this component of continuous improvement. Right, and so going back to the advisory bulletin a little bit, and I think it's 00062 if you guys want to find it, 2022. Um, this creates an opportunity for lessons learned, right? 0063. So, Sorry, it's 0063 for our audience. Awesome. We'll put a reference to it in the show notes. And so the point is, that I think this creates enough awareness that should trigger integrity management plans, that component of continuous improvement, and then saying, hey, this is an opportunity for us to yeah. add this into our plan. Cool. In doing that, one of the things I wanted to challenge Alex, <laughs> I don't know that Alex and I agree with this, and I like on things we don't necessarily agree with. <laughs> um, you, I, I'm curious what a prescriptive regulation for geohazards would look like? Uh, that, I mean, that, that's a great question. And, and uh, <laughs> Do we want prescriptive regulation for geohazards? Well, I'm on a API committee, which is when it's published, mm-hmm. it's going to be API recommended practice 1187. Um, I think a lot of operators do want a prescriptive. But that's not regulation. You think you're saying that the RP is going to be prescriptive. Right. The RP is going to be prescriptive. The idea is that they that it may be cited by regulation at some point, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And kind of that, that, that process from recommended practice to regulation that's many other types of um, pipeline-related issues have gone through, right? So you, you get the industry to get together, say these are what we think are the uh, best practices, uh, these are what we think are the, should be the, the requirements, and then 
with the hope that that then influences the the regulation at some point. So I'm really interested to hear more about this 1187. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be another episode. Mm-hmm. I get I, I so as we planned out this episode, I think it's highly likely. I don't know if this is two. This might even be three. You might be with us for a long time. This. <laughs> You came on as a hitchhiker. I don't know if you realized how long you. This might be a long. This might be a long road trip. Just have to call up my agent, make sure that we can work this out. (laughs) You know where we're going. (laughs) I have no idea. Oh my gosh! (laughs) But uh, I I do want to hone in on something. So you know, when when these RPs are developed, right? These recommended practices. You know, eventually they can go into standards. But I think what you you said something that we should dive into a little bit. You said, you know, um, these RPs are usually. consensus based right so you'll get you'll get sometimes regulators involved you know you get operators you'll get you know um, service providers consultants SMEs and did I hear you say that there was a bit of a consensus on the on the committee for a bit of a prescriptive nature for managing geohazards is that where you were headed yeah because I think what the, one of the, the the problems are some of the people that we work with and they have an incident and then they get tremendous regulatory pressure after the incident. Part yes. of the thing is that they're saying, look, there's no particular requirements in the regulations. How can you say that our program was good mm-hmm. or bad, was yeah. adequate, is inadequate? Well, because you so, had an incident. Right, so it's it, performance. Right, right. And so then it becomes a moving target for I what know. are the regulators going to then try to impose yeah. upon the, um, the operators? Because they, they can't point to a specific all they can point to is what, as Rudd just said, you had an incident. So you yeah. failed from that standpoint. So therefore you weren't doing it correctly. Right. But otherwise, it's a moving target wow. where they might see their program as being inadequate. What should be the corrective actions that need to be implemented to make it I know how many operators out there are listening to this show right now thinking like, well, yeah, that's my pain point. So, uh, you know, so where I want to go now. This is really good. I, I didn't actually know that the background alone for the uh, advance notice or the notice would, would yield to that. But I actually want to get into the details. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to get into how some of the, the, the things that are in the, the uh, what do you, I just, the advisory bulletin. Thank you, are in the advisory <laughs> bulletin. Before we do that, my God, this person is driving so slow. We're going to have to take a break so I can get around this person. So I'm going to call for a break from our sponsors. You're in the wrong way! (laughs) Do I need to get my gun ready? (laughs) Hi, I'm Kara Turner. I am the managing director and co-founder of ADV Marketing. We get the honor of working with Rhett and Christopher to produce this crazy podcast and also work with them on any other initiatives that they have when it comes to marketing. And if you know them or are listening to this podcast, you know that it gets pretty crazy around here. So we have a lot of fun with them. ADV Marketing is a full-service business-to-business marketing agency. Um, We specialize in service companies and technology companies. So if you are enjoying listening to this podcast and the fun that they're having, reach out to us and see how we can make your marketing fun. Welcome back to this episode of Pipeline Things. We are about to get knee-deep into the FEMSA advisory on geohazards, the advisory bulletin they just put out. I just want to apologize to you guys, that little road rage incident we had. Something about slow drivers. In the left lane. In the left lane when you get, and they just won't get over. And normally they're better about that in Texas, but I guess in the panhandle. They didn't want to get over. So it's all right. I just they're, I, they're probably just passing through. They're not used to the the 75, 80 mile an hour, you know, 
is is standard and yeah. passing lane well, I'm isn't driving limited so to 75 or 80. 75 to 80 because if you were yeah. driving it would be 85 to 90. Hey, hey. You're driving, buddy. I know. Right. I'm driving the show. So, um Alex is just the dirt merchant is here. For the hitchhiking dirt merchant <laughs> is here for the ride. That can be the tagline. Yep. So, okay, let's jump into this advisory bulletin. So, Alex, I'm, I'm going to step through the points in the advisory bulletin. Okay. Christopher, you can follow along, too. Let's do it. So, after they went through the background, which I went through the background and this, you know said that there were 17 incidents that they cited, and they cited the fact that land movement incidents are happening. But they get into meet. It says pipeline operators should consider taking the following actions, mm-hmm. and I'm going to talk about these briefly. Let's go through each one. Some of them I think we'll spend more time on than others. Identify areas surrounding the pipeline that may be prone to large earth movement. Okay, and then it gives a list, which I thought was interesting: slope stability, subsidence, frost heave, soil settlement, erosion, earthquakes, and other dynamic geologic conditions mm-hmm. that may pose. Some of those I think landslides we all think about. Maybe the other ones we don't. Yep, Alex. How does an operator begin with the identify? Let's make this let's make this show pragmatic for operators. What are your thoughts on identifying the hazards? Where do you begin? You know, this is interesting, Rhett, because this is the shortest one of these sections, but I think in many ways the most important. Because mm-hmm. if you don't identify what the threats are, it's really hard to manage the threats later on, right? So yeah. all the other pieces that come from true hazard management come from the identification process. Um, I think during the last session, we talked about you really should consider assessing an entire pipeline system. It's it's dangerous, I think, to make assumptions that certain areas are prone mm-hmm. or not prone to geo hazards. And if you look at that list in the advisory, there's incidents in Texas, uh, there's there's incidents in Ohio, lo- lo- Ohio mm-hmm. you know, Pennsylvania, yep. um, all across the country, right? And so what that really tells us is that geo hazards is not just a one location consideration yeah. you don't want to just assume you don't have that that threat now in terms of the, the no wait does that go both ways alex i i feel like i'm in california i'm susceptible to landslides right. close miles to everything else i am in the midwestern united states yeah. i'm not a, i'm not susceptible to anything that's what you think right but like you look at like river crossings you know i've worked on sites where they had ruptures in indiana illinois north dakota um there's an incident in the advisory in texas incidents in arkansas mississippi Right. I mean, there's lots of there's uh, lots of uh, incidents that happen in many lo- geographic locations. So when you look at that identification process, really the gold standard would be using lidar, which is a high-resolution laser surveying technique. Um, operators can either fly that themselves; they can go out and, and hire a contractor who's a specialist in collecting lidar data, or in many cases, there's now state public data that's pretty good that covers most of the of the, uh, the the state. So you're su- are you suggesting run LIDAR even before you've identified the threat just to determine if you have the threat? Or are you taking a step back and saying identify the threat? Because I'm thinking the bullet said just identify identify areas that may be prone. Right. And so, and it's, yeah. and so that's one of the big challenges, right? And you know we might get into this a little bit later, right? There are resources that show locations of landslides or other uh, cheer hazards. But in many cases, these are really incomplete and so maybe they have really good information for one location they're not set up for the purposes of pipeline geohazard management and so relying on those kind of public resources could lead you to overlook a very obvious threat and so mm. what what i'm a big advocate for is not doing a uh, set of assumptions based on all the public data but really going out there and looking at it now so in your mind identifying the threat 
and we've actually gone longer on one than I thought, but maybe it's because you said it's important. Yep. Identifying the threat is more than just a desktop assessment. Absolutely. And you're, wow. Yeah, so I got to be honest. I, yeah, I, I want to jump hard. in there a little bit. So a lot of times, um, I guess I'll just ask in the form of a question for you. Would you say that identifying the threat is an exhaustive process? So if you're an operator and you want to jump in this, if they were to say, if they were to come and say, hey, we want you to help us identify our susceptible areas right. and you rattle off that list, is that an exhaustive effort that someone would say is two years or is that something that you could do in six months? Like give us a gauge there. Yeah. So these, these are great questions. These are some questions, you know, that we, we go through a lot when we're talking to operators about that because... You, you can know. answer them, right? Because if you can't, you have to get out of No, I think, I think it's... I think it's uh, it is a good question, right? Because, you know, when we talk about identification, initial assessment, yeah. you know, just kind of got, got done talking about LIDAR. But in many areas, you know, where, say, it's wide open, like West Texas or Wyoming, uh, you can look at resources like Google Earth or, you know, aerial photos that are publicly maintained, as long as you have someone who knows what they're looking for um, and can pull in that data, look at it, do the evaluation. You can also pull in some public data sources like seismic hazard maps, yeah. other things like that, where it's a desktop level evaluation. And what we found is that the bigger the area that you can look at at one time, yeah. the, the cost per mile goes down significantly, yeah. right? It's not a fixed yeah, that's true. You know, cost per mile. And so for the, for the operator, it really is dependent on what's the risk tolerance. Are they willing to wait for several yeah. years while they go through that process? Um, what's the, the budget availability to, yeah. to look at it? But, you know, in most cases, if you compare it to, say, ILI technologies, yeah. the cost to the initial desktop review, whether it's with LiDAR, uh, air photos, is, is far less on a per mile basis. And it, so I it, think that's kind of an important thing to keep in mind is, is we're, not, we're not talking cost in the millions. We're typically talking costs in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, um, even for very large systems to do that mm. that initial assessment. With the exception that if you're collecting original lidar for everything, it might bump that cost up. Yeah, I think I think one of the things we talked we summarized in the the last time we had you in was it's one. There's kind of two camps, right? right. There's the the terrain-based activity like landslides, yep. and then there's the the weather-related type activities. Yep. And then there's also that component of you can balance your identification on macroscopic data like LIDAR and then I think an ILI and then I think we also summarize that and then where you're not sure you could deploy on-site investigations. Yeah, I think the, the major paint that I took away from what Alex just said, and I, I guess I always envision item number one is just being something you screen on a desktop and, mm -hmm. and Alex really kind of for yeah. me, he brought on that, that, that item number one may be more or is likely in your opinion. Right more than just saying, I have this based on maps. You actually do need to put some eyes on the pipeline, uh, which is interesting. So if you're out there listening, that's our summary of point number one. Point number two is probably your favorite. I'm mm -hmm. gonna question whether you helped them write it, because it doesn't involve me. <laughs> Use geotechnical engineers, that's you, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I, well, I'm not. I'm not a geotechnical. I'm a geologist, right? So. Oh, so it's, uh, you're excluded from yeah, point number two. <laughs> <laughs> you, you think they would have put dirt merchants? Use dirt merchants. <laughs> hey, you gotta get that on the RP. Yeah. <laughs> Use dirt well, merchants. Really geologists and geotechnical. RP 1187 yeah. defines. I will give you good money if you can get dirt merchant worked into 1187. Yeah. Yeah. an official term. It's like a yeah. footer or something. Okay. Somewhere. Um, Use geological and geotechnical engineers during the design, construction, and ongoing operation of a pipeline. 
to ensure that sufficient information is available to avoid or minimize the impact of earth movement. And then they actually give you a list of different type of information, including soil strength characteristics, ground and surface water conditions, propensity for erosion and scour of underlying soils, the propensity of earthquakes or frost heave. So my, I have two observations. Mm -hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on. I don't know how many geotechnical engineers we have out there actually working with operators, mm -hmm. major transmission companies, much less distribution and gathering companies across right. the board, which I already brought about earlier in the episode. And two is like some of this information, Alex, this is, this is not easy to get. When you talk about soil strength characteristics, ground and water surface conditions, um, what are your thoughts on that? That is that that seems like a honestly to meet that requirement. Am I wrong in saying it feels like a lot, or am I off base? Correct me if I am. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if I was writing that, that uh, advisor might have framed that a little, little differently because I kind of see points one and two as being pretty similar. I mean, the basic mm -hmm. idea is to identify your threats. Once you've identified them, then assess their severity the pipeline, right? So yeah. another way of just saying it is, okay. you know, you kind of look at it as, um, as a funnel, right? Your, your top of your funnel is your entire system. Yeah. And then your next level down is like, okay, we've identified specific areas. We think we may have true hazard threat exposure. Let's assess the threat to the, the pipeline. And that can take many different forms. Um, you know, some of the stuff they're looking at might be very, very site specific. You know, you're not typically looking at soil strength properties for an entire pipeline system. Yeah, that's uh, where I was getting. That that alone is it's completely impractical to do. Right. But this is why I think, I'm going to be honest, this is why I think people need to talk to a geotechnical engineer and not right. just try and do it in-house. I mean, as I read that, I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot of information, but you, the right tools is an SME, and I'm not trying to toot your horn, but I think how you interpret that point and what its application is to pipeline integrity management may be different than a novice or somebody who's not familiar yeah. reading that. Right, right. There's been a concept around the, the true hazard management of the, the phased assessment approach. It's just right. dirt. Anybody can do it. Right. It, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so the phase... <laughs> You know, think of like a phase assessment. Phase one is your 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 big picture. It's your yeah, you know, you're looking at everything. Call it screening level. Call it identification. Phase two is mm. okay. We're going to take a more detailed, but we're still going to be kind of a little bit more high level. And so for us, that's often uh, field assessments, walking around and looking at things on yep. boots on the ground. And phase three is when you really need that information, and then maybe you're actually doing the traditional. I'm taking soil samples. Yeah. Um, so I'm submitting that to. So you actually kind of led into point three, mm -hmm. right? And I think, I don't know if you did, but it may, and I don't think I misunderstood. I think you led very naturally into point three of the FEMS advisory bulletin, which is develop design construction and monitoring plans and procedures for each identified location based on the site specific hazard identified, which is where you kind of start going with that more detailed. Yeah, so I almost want to ask it, is the proper interpretation there is it's you need to get to the point to where you have a list of sites that's kind of right. like in facilities integrity, we have, you know, um, certain monitoring locations. Yep. Like you have specific locations. Is is that the way to interpret that? I, I would say exactly. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You want it. You want to get to a, a list of sites. You want to get to a, a threat assessment for each one of those sites, mm -hmm. right? And so some some sites you'll look at it and say, yep, there's a landslide or there's a propensity to frost heave, but we think the threat is pretty low yeah. based on what we've looked at. And another site you may look at that and say, wow, there's this landslide. We've got, it's over the top of the pipeline. Our ILI bending strain is showing mm -hmm. a very high strain at that location. It's actively moving. That's a high threat site. We should prioritize yeah. responding to that site and, and do an appropriate measure to, uh, to manage it. Um, and again, when I, when I look at the point three, I'd say I would interpret it a little differently than how it's 
written, but I think what it's trying to say is developing planning and procedures in-house so that when you are going through the process, it's an organized, systematic yeah. process rather yeah. than trying to figure out each site individually on a site-by-site -site basis. And, and got to be honest, what, you're, what we're doing here, inadvertently or directly, is even though it's not written that way, the advisory bulletin's following standard IM procedures. Yes, That's really what yep. we're doing. You're identifying the threat in step one. Yep. You're gathering information pertinent to the threat. I think the challenge is that the geotechnical information and where you brought in a little bit of a, 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 an important point is that some of that information is not system-wide. Exactly. Like some of the systems are too big. You have to gather site-specific information for that threat. Right. Then you develop the IM plan, the threat, how you're going to assess it in bullet point three, which is what we talked about. And bullet point three then goes into bullet point four. And this right. is the one where I need to know whether or not you guys are gonna wanna pull over and sleep for the night. It, I think or, it just boils down to if there's a Bucky's. The, is there a Bucky's? Well, I'll know. pull out my phone to find out if there's a Bucky's. You guys go ahead. You do it. So, it Wait, says... Are we an Apple Maps group or are we a, a Google Maps group? Do they still use Apple Maps? Isn't that the one that everybody got rid of for a while? <laughs> um, <laughs> monitoring plans. It's really interesting to me because the fourth point is monitoring plans, mm -hmm. right? Which I think it says the third bullet point was develop design, construction, and monitoring plans. Right. And the fourth point is monitoring plans. And this is the same list as 2019. Nothing changed yet. Mm -hmm. So I want you to know the four points we're going through are the same in 2019 as they were in 2022. Yep. It says monitoring plans may include precisions related to the following. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read them real quick and then let's, let's mm -hmm. think about whether or not we want to talk about them. Ensuring during excavation of new pipelines that excavators do not steepen or undercut slopes. So think all new construction. Yep. And there's been, because there's always been reasons where that happened. Yep. Conducting periodic visits and site inspections. That's an interesting one that I find a bit controversial. And again, all this is under the guise of monitoring plans. Right. Identifying geodetic monitoring points, mm -hmm. which is another very interesting one to me. Installing slope inclinometers. I think you and I are familiar with those. Installing standpipe piezometers. I don't even know Pizometers. if those... I, spelled, I did it wrong. Did you I, correct me? I, I did. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how I feel about. It. I want to ask Miss Producer, but she's not here with us. Hey, there is a. There, I just say he has he has a valid point because there's not a Bucky's so up the awkward. road. But we're like 30 miles from a Buck Easy's. Oh gosh. So again, no. we got to be careful. It we're not what doing. You want. That's not real thing, man. It's got to be the real thing. You're gonna walk in there. You're gonna be expecting beaver nuggets or some of that really Super good clean jerky. Mm -hmm. And mm. you're gonna yeah, you're gonna get none of the above. You're gonna get Bob Jack's jerky, which is made from some animal that's processed and smashed together that nobody jerky? wants. <laughs> I, actually, I don't even know how to respond to that because I don't know if you're being serious. And now I'm questioning if you've actually eaten possum before. Let's move on. Okay, thank you. Um, to all of our PETA friends out there, we apologize for Chris's insensitive comment. <laughs> um, okay, so installing, let me make sure I get this correct. Since you've corrected me, mm -hmm. Mr. Dirt Merchant, Sir Dirt Merchant. Um, I'm actually offended now. Installing standpipe <laughs> Pizometers. There you go. Good job. You. <laughs> this is like a live mission for you to get it right. Pizometers. <laughs> um, so evaluating the accumulation of strain on the pipeline by installing strain gauges was the next mm -hmm. point. That one, I think, has very specific applications as well. Yep. Conducting stress strain analysis using ILI tools. That's one I'm very familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then the last one, which I already tapped on too, was utilizing aerial mapping, flight detection, and ranging. Um, and it says develop uh, mitigation measures for the identified locations. That's kind of a rehash of all yep. of them. Uh, so let's 
do you guys want to get into these monitoring planes? Do we want to do this, or do we want to stop for the night? Um, maybe let's uh, let's let's let, let's leave a cliffhanger there. So I tell Let, you what, Harris, want to get into monitoring plans. We just went through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points that I don't think we would all agree should be used in all cases. And uh, clearly, really some people, point. even experts in the industry, can't pronounce pisometer correct. <laughs> so, do you like? I'll, how I did look, that? I'll even go another way. I mean, because again, we said this earlier. I'll never forget. Th this it, no. is very um, consistent with a traditional plan, do, check, act, integrity mm, loop, right? Yep. I, I think something that's interesting is you just listed eight eight activities, mm -hmm. and I would say that industry would even have a little bit of discussion as to the difference between an assessment, mm. where you're trying to establish if it's fit. Versus it just being an activity to understand what's going on, like gathering data and all of that fun stuff. So I feel like maybe that's where we need to talk a bit of saying, you know, if you if you have a site and you go and you're getting soil samples, again, I think we would agree that that's really just an activity. Well, some of these monitoring plans, you have to have an objective. If yeah. you just go and install pisometers <laughs> out on the site... <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to have an objective what you want to get from those. Otherwise, yeah, so useless. I mean, the question is Same if you're gathering data on a regular basis, is that your assessment? But or if you run you a bending know? strain, is that the assessment? Oh, I think we need to stop the Bucky's <laughs> or the hotel. Because <laughs> I, I want to leave a cliffhanger for the group. I think that one, and I know there's no way we're getting through mitigation measures. And there's a whole bullet point here on mitigation measures that has one, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. He knows how to 12. count. We, we, we can 12. put that together. At least he can count. Miss Producer, note that I know how to count. <laughs> you should all be asking why Miss Producer's on the hood of the car, and nobody needs to have an answer to that. <laughs> there are 12 mitigation measures, some of them that I know Alex and I will agree and disagree on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, audience, I'm sorry, I know y'all joined us on this lovely road trip. We're gonna have you're gonna have to come back with us after we sleep for the night. For episode two of the Geohazards FEMSA Advisory Bulletin, where we pick up and talk about the specific monitoring plans and the mitigation options that they offer to you in light of are you conducting, what is the word you used? Assessments. Assessments, mm -hmm. or if you're just trying to monitor. So it's been a pleasure. I'm glad we made it all the way into Colorado, but we're not to the mountain yet. Join us next time as we continue this episode, and it's been a fun road ride with you guys. I am Thing 20, your host, my co-host Thing 21, and our hitchhiker for this episode and the next, the dirt merchant Alex McKenzie Johnson. Thanks, and see you next two weeks.